Uh, all right, so uh, right now let's turn in our Bibles. Second Peter, Second Peter, chapter two. Last week we we started looking. Second, chapter two is really going to deal with this this problem of false teachers that uh, Peter's going to show us eventually is not not really a, a problem uh, because it's something the Lord is going to take care of them and take care of us. Uh, and we'll see how that has been a continued theme uh, in Scripture. Uh, the Lord's protection of his people and the Lord's righteous judgment on these false teachers. And we've seen these false teachers. They're not, this isn't people who are on accident, you know, leading a Bible study and say the wrong thing about a verse, uh, you know, who, who happens to pick the, the wrong millennial view. Uh, and so they are, you know, sort of stroked into this false teacher position. These are people who are willfully, as we'll see today, especially, they're willfully twisting God's word. They're wanting to be the master over their life. They're wanting to be the master over God's word, over God's people. They're denying uh, the Lord. And so we saw last week, just a, a quick refresh. So you remember where we're at, starting in verse 1. I think we just made it through verse 1. We didn't even make it all the way through verse 1. Uh, is we saw that these false teachers will arise. That's going to happen to these people. And we've seen that that is not something that we should expect just to happen to them but is a continued theme, even though the word false teachers is only used here, the idea of what of false teaching and what people uh, might mislead the, the, the church is found in multiple New Testament letters. Uh, it wasn't just a first century issue. Uh, so false teachers will arise. They will bring division based on man's word, not God's word. Remember, they're wanting to create this division. That word heresies means division, separations. They're wanting to create separation. Some separation is good, right? Paul even said it's good for you to have factions, same word. Uh, but that's when the faction is based on we're standing on God's word and we can't stand on anything else. These people are saying, hey, break from the church or pull the church toward us and what we say, our interpretation, which is why uh, Peter has to say, look, the scripture, including its interpretation, that's all from the Lord. People don't get to just twist, you know, to take God's word and twist the intent of it even. You can't just quote scripture, but then say it means what you want it to mean. It has to mean both, it has to be both what God said and what he intended that saying to be. You don't get to, you don't get to change the interpretation. You didn't find a new allegory to put on it and, and spin it into. But these men were doing it. They're bringing division based on man's word, not God's word. Uh, we saw, you know, sometimes you, you can go beyond scripture. Sometimes you pull up short. Either way, it is to make man's word the focus. And then they ultimately reject the lordship of Christ. And this is where we saw that their disobedience is intentional. And we saw multiple times. We'll see it again in Second Peter that they are rejecting authority. They're despising it. They are, they are hating the, they're hating their master. They're, they're not accidentally denying the master. Hey, don't you realize that by the actions you're taking, you're actually denying your savior. No, they are outright intentionally saying, we don't want you to be master over how we view the word and what it says. We don't want to submit to what God says about the word. We want the word to submit to us. And they know they're doing it. It's a willful rejection. There is very much a pride built up in this. But Peter's not done describing uh, what these false teachers will do. Uh, and, and, and since this is where God talks about false teachers, we'll continue to look at this, this list. But let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. We'll read verses 1 through the start of verse 10 again. 
and we'll see some more things that can just help us prepare uh, and understand what these false teachers are doing and how so we can be prepared for false teachers that will arise in our day in various ways. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by, their sensual, by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these teachers who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority, when we see these people and their intent and what they want to do to the church, may it sicken us. May it drive us to humility ourselves. But Father, may your word protect us, lest as we see today, their tempting words tickle our ears. We pray, Father, that your word would hold us fast, as you promise you will do through that word by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've seen those, those first few things, but, but he's continuing on. Look at the end of verse 1. Uh, the next thing we're going to see is that false teaching brings destruction. Now, we're not going to talk about this too much because this is going to be a big theme starting in verse 4 uh, and really running for quite a while. Uh, that, that these false teachers will bring upon themselves and upon their hearers destruction. This is, this is destroying this is destroying the faith that's going to destroy them ultimately. And this destruction is not just a, it's like Zachary said, it's not just a temporal destruction. It's not, hey, these people are going to be stoned one day. This is eternal judgment of God upon them. Look at what it says. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Their opinions of the scripture, their twisting of God's word is only going to bring one result. It's not going to bring growth to them. It's not going to bring health to the church. There's going to be no positives that come from manipulating God's word. When you manipulate God's word, you bring only destruction. The word for destruction is actually going to be repeated multiple times in these next few sentences and in these next couple of paragraphs for the, for the teachers and their effect and the outcome of their life and what God's going to rescue his people from. In fact, 
almost one third of the New Testament's use of the word destruction is found in Peter. And especially in this section. And you see it here. These are, what did he say? These are destructive heresies. They bring in heresies that destroy. And remember, even the word heresy comes from the word that means to blow something up. Uh, they come, they are destroying, destroying things. And this destroying, destroying that they're doing, this destructive division and breaking and explosion that they're doing in the church is ultimately going to blow up in their face. And it's going to carry with it those who are standing by them. It's going to destroy them. It's going to destroy their hearers. But he especially focuses that the destruction is going to be on them. That's how he ends it. He says, they're bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, what the specifics were of their false teaching or what they said, remember, is, is, is apparently not important because he doesn't tell us exactly what it is. What is important is that that teaching, any teaching that perverts God's word, that manipulates God's word intentionally to deceive the people and pull them to your view and your side rather than God's is only going to lead you to destruction. Let that be a warning to you every time you go to teach God's word. Whether you're a Sunday school teacher or a parent or a pastor, if you see the text and you go, oh, if I just twisted it a little bit, it would say exactly what I wanted it to say. You know what? If you, if you just took this and just went a few extra steps, not even that many, just a few steps beyond it, uh, I could make this say something that would be really neat and really fit my point. Look, if you're doing that, if you're seeing it and you know That's not really what it says. And you make it say it anyway. It doesn't matter what intent you think you have. It doesn't matter what good you think will come of it. Oh, if I, if I tell my kids it says this, then that'll be an extra thing that'll hold them fast to God. No, actually it won't. Because one day they're going to read that verse and they're going to realize that verse isn't saying what you told them it said. And then what is that verse going to teach them about you and your, your leadership and your training of them? The Bible warns here, if you, if, you, if you go beyond God's word, if you, if you pull short of, you may, if you make God's word about what you want it to say, like these teachers, it's going to bring only destruction. Now, this isn't saying, as we're going to see, this isn't saying it won't be popular. We'll see in just a second why this teaching is, so, is going to be so popular. But what it is saying is it doesn't matter what the outcome right now might be. The end is swift destruction. The final outcome of those who say, God, I know you say this in your word, but I don't care what your word says. I'm going to say it says this. I'm going to go and make it my word instead of your word. The people who do that, those who teach falsely, in the end, meet swift destruction. Not even just destruction, right? Swift destruction. That word swift can mean quick like the destruction is going to come and it'll be over like that. It can also mean sudden that it's going to come like that. It probably means both. Because both are taught in scripture. The destruction of those who have rebelled against the Lord, their destruction will come in the blink of an eye and they will be destroyed. And it warns that, that that destruction will come when they are not ready for it. It will not come with warning. There will not be preparation. There will not be a time to fix whatever. It will come and it will be done. False teaching is dangerous. 
Because although all false teaching is different, it all leads to the same destination, destruction. You know, Oprah once famously said that she thinks all paths lead to the same place. And I agree with her. If those paths are all false teaching, they do all lead to the same place. She just didn't know what mount she was looking at. Uh, she, she was looking at Mount Ebal or something, you know, uh, she, she was, she was looking at the wrong one because the Bible is clear. There, there are multiple paths that lead to the same thing. Like Christ said, there is a broad road. It's a broad road that leads to what? Destruction. So whatever they're teaching, you know, see what would happen is I, I, sometimes I love God's ambiguity on things like this, because if, if God was specific in what the false teaching was here. We would only be on the lookout for that false teaching. We would only say, okay, this is a problem. But if he lays out, look, it's about taking any of scripture and interpreting anything that is in God's word. Like he says, there's no prophecy, no prophecy that you can sort of make your own interpretation. Then everything you hear in scripture, we are all subject to all of it all the time. All of it all the time. Jesus talks about the destruction that comes to those who falsely teach the word of God. Matthew chapter 7 talks about these false prophets. Verse 15 through 20 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Remember, just like we saw in Peter, these people are apparently coming from within the church. They come to you in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly, these people aren't even goats, right? And it'd be bad enough, if, you know, like wheat and tares. They, they pretend to be sheep, but they're not sheep. They're goats. He's like, no, they're not even goats. They're wolves, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. These false teachers, he says, bear rotten fruit, and in the end they face destruction. Their rotten apples will show that the, their root is rotten. And in the end, the only thing that will happen to them is they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Why? Because they have not borne good fruit. How can these people who it says who are purchased by the master? Well, how does this make sense? They've been purchased by the master. How can they end up facing judgment? Because that's a question people have. You look at this as like they're denying their master who bought them. Well, how can how can they be denying the master who bought them and be facing judgment? Jude's going to give us insight into this judgment of these false teachers and of of those who follow them. That that again, it's not just the teachers who are destroyed, but also those who listen to them. Look at Jude 5. Remember, we saw the great parallels between Jude and this section. But look at verse 5. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Now, there's a verse to help you understand Christ in the Old Testament right there. Uh, that's a verse to circle and be like, okay, I apparently didn't understand my Old Testament at all. Uh, that Jesus, who is not new to the scene, right? That Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What's Jude warning about here? 
that if people, if the people listen to these false teachers, they will face a destruction similar to the destruction that the Israelites faced. That they had been saved by God from, from Egypt, but in the end, they were destroyed, he says, because of their lack of belief. And Judah saying these serve as a warning for Christians in general, but for Peter's readers as well. Because what are these people doing? These people, once they got out of Egypt, are showing the people, the Israelites out in the wilderness, showed that they were rejecting their new, let's put an Old Testament spin on it, their new Pharaoh. They were rejecting their new master. And were showing that though their bodies had left Egypt, their hearts never did. And that's what was important. Because it's not just the fact that these people are in church. Look, I mean, they're in church, so that must mean they're okay. He says, look, you can be in church, but if your heart has never, has never left your old master, it doesn't, you can't just say, look, the Lord brought me out of Egypt. Look, I'm here, in, I'm in church, and where, I could be a hundred other places. He says, look, there were Israelites that Jesus saved out of Egypt, but in the end destroyed for their unbelief. And it's not just the teachers who know this isn't from God. Their hearers, he warns, are willfully rejecting God too. That's what's, that's a, that can be an encouraging thing to us. Uh, that this false teaching that these people believe in, they know they're believing false teaching. They know it's not God's word too. They know it is a lack of belief in the Lord. And therefore, they're rejecting their redemption just as much as the, as the false teachers are. So in the case of these false teachers, if they continue to deny their master, they're going to show who their master really is. So if someone continues to reject the Lord in their teaching and in their life, they're showing, well, the Lord's just not their master. It's almost as if you could put air quotes around denying the master who bought them, right? That's what they're claiming. Oh, this is the master who brought me redemption. Well, if he's your master, explain how you're living. If he's your master, then why aren't you submitting to what he says? If he's your master, then why are you living the way you want to live? Why is he not governing every area of your life? Because that verse, remember, says he's your despot. He's your king. He's your tyrant. He's your ruler. And you can say that all you want. You can say, look, he is my savior and my Lord. And both Jude and Peter say, look at your life. Look at your life. Because the Israelites in the wilderness were, could be leaving Egypt singing about God who has saved me. But their hearts never left that place. They refused to believe. So these false teachers, if they continue to show that they're the master of their life and their beliefs, they will follow these Israelites to destruction uh, and those who follow them will meet the same end. So the outcome of false teaching is only destruction. And that's a good warning to us anytime we get in God's word. And you think if I just spend it a little, something good might come out of it. It will only bear rotten fruit. It will be the witch's Turkish delight. We may not know what they were teaching, but we do know this. We know that whatever it is, people liked it. People will listen. Why? Because false teachers will use temptation to attract. Look at what it says in, in verse 2. 
and many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. These false teachers are not leading people to the word. They're leading people to sensuality. And so many will follow them on the way to sensuality. They know it's just like the, like the people in the wilderness. They know where they're leading. They know they're not being led to the rock that is Christ. They know where they're going and they, and they like it. And they like someone coming and, and maybe putting a Bible spin on sensuality so that they feel better as they sin. These false teachers are leading people to sensuality. Peter told the, uh, the, the shepherds back in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 that they're to be an example to the flock. It's 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 3. You're supposed to be examples to the flock. Well, these false teachers are being examples, but they're being bad examples. They're shepherding. They're shepherding people. But unlike Psalm 23, which Zachary read this morning when we prayed before church, let me encourage you to come and do that if you'd like. We meet here about 9 o'clock to pray, 9.15-ish sometimes. Unlike our shepherd who leads us through the valley of death, these false teachers lead their people into the valley of death. By their example, they're out front. They're out front leading the way. They're encouraging others, but encouraging them to give in to their sinful passions. We'll see that word mentioned a lot coming up. Whatever the specifics of their teaching, it's not driven by a true desire to know the word. Again, this is, this is how you can see this. Is, they're not just wrong. They're wanting it to say what they want it to say. They're not just incorrect. They are spinning it to be able to be sensual in their lives. They're looking for a way to be driven by sin. And their sensuality will encourage others, it says. That many, many will follow their sensuality because people like that. It is a popular thing to encourage sensuality. I don't know if you've noticed the culture lately. But if you tell people that, hey, you know, just do what's right in your own eyes. You go, well, I feel like the Bible says something about that. And I don't think it was good. But if you come to the people and say, hey, do what's right in your own eyes. You'll be fine. Everything's great. That's a pretty popular thing. Even within Christ's church. The word sensuality here has to do with physical passions. And these false teachers will prey on those temptations. Peter used this word sensuality back in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 3 to tell us this is how the Gentiles used to live. This is how the Gentiles lived. 1 Peter 4 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. That's the, that's the way, I mean, if we're stealing from Jude's language, that's the way of Egypt. That's the way of the Gentiles. That's the way of the fallen world. And these false teachers are having people who want to hear, it's okay to do what you want. In fact, he's going to use it again in just a little bit to describe the lifestyle of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
You're, they're leading people to live like Sodom and Gomorrah. And let me tell you this, there are churches who are leading people to believe that exactly what Sodom and Gomorrah did is okay. I mean, word for word. <laughs> Say, oh, the... I mean, because it's very clear that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, amongst other things, but specifically that in terms of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet people will take that, what the Bible is very clear on, and somehow spin it into, it's not, it's not, a, it's not bad, it's okay. And there are people in the church that go, oh, sweet, that's what I wanted to hear. That's what I wanted, because, not because they're homosexuals themselves, but because if that's okay, then everything's okay. If something explicitly referenced in scripture as a sin can be okay, then my thing it might not be specifically mentioned, all of a sudden becomes open game as well. And so people like that. They want those things. What these false teachers are doing is they're coming in and twisting scripture in a way that lets people live sensual lives and some people will love that. And therefore, they're going to love these teachers. And there are people in the church who want you to say that sin is okay. They want you to. In fact, there are parts of, of some of our hearts who want, want someone to say that the sin we're struggling with is okay. We want that. How do you know that? Because probably some of your hearts are telling you about a certain sin right now that you're dealing with and you haven't, that you know what the scripture says. And yet you continue to do it. And you, you would, love, I mean, you've got a sin, you've got a failing, you've got a shortcoming, an area where you are not submitting to your master And you know the word tells you you should be, but you're not. You're not. You know how you should be living, and yet you refuse to. You know what you should be doing, and yet you're not. You know what your master has told you. And yet you're living as if you are your master. If I, as a pastor, or Zachary, were to tell you all of a sudden from Scripture that that sin was okay, your heart would love to hear that. You know why? Because your heart's already telling you that. Or you would have stopped doing it and started obeying. So you would love if a shepherd would come to you and say, you know what? I think we've been reading the Bible all wrong all along. And so Peter's warning the people, don't fall for this. You should know that there's a desire for sensuality and that shows the true heart of the teacher. If you've got a teacher who's leading you toward toward sensuality instead of holiness, who's encouraging you to live like the Gentiles instead of encouraging you to live like the Lord, you should know that's a problem. If to steal from 1 Peter, if instead of telling you to trace the life of Christ, he's encouraging you to trace the life of the lost man next door. You know there's something wrong with that teaching. If all of a sudden, if you live the life that he's telling you to live, you'd look more like Fred, who hasn't been to church in 50 years, than you do Jesus Christ. There's something wrong with that teaching. In fact, this is what the Bible tells us, Mark, uh, Mark chapter 7. And Jesus told us about those who love sensuality. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. That these false teachers are encouraging sensuality is a warning sign, a fruit 
Remember, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Well, one of the fruits is if someone is encouraging you to a more sinful life or encouraging you that sin is okay. You know what Peter's going to tell them in just a little bit? This world's going to be burnt up and everything in it. So what should you do? Be holy. That's what people need to tell us. Look, everyone is following a road that leads to destruction. You know what would, if they're already on the road that leads to destruction, let's just pull up a little bit close to that path and maybe we'll get some of them to come in here with us. You know what the Bible says to do? You, you know, how do you live in the light of a world that is headed toward destruction? What do you do? You live a life of holiness. And so if you've got someone who is teaching you that sensuality is okay, then that fruit should be evidence of the heart of the tree. And that that heart is, is dead for, for out of the heart, the mouth speaks. But again, the destructiveness of these teachers is seen that not only do they destroy themselves, we're going to see that they also denigrate the name of Christ. The end of verse 2. We'll see that false teaching leads to blasphemy of the gospel. Blaspheming the gospel. So they deny their master by their teaching and they denigrate their master by their lifestyle. Ultimately, again, showing he's not their master. Not only do they not obey him, they don't care about him. They don't care. So when you say you're denying your master, it's not like they're going, oh no, if only I had known, you know. They don't care. They don't care that that it's leading to blasphemy of the Lord. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The sensual teaching and the leadership of these false teachers is ultimately going to lead not only to their destruction, but in the meantime, in the present, it's going to lead to the gospel being blasphemed. In their choices, they are blaspheming the gospel. And their choices will lead others inside and outside of the church to do the same. Now, the Bible actually encourages Christians that part of the reason we live godly lives is because we love our master. One of the reasons you're encouraged to live a godly life is because Jesus is great. In fact, it is that love of the gospel that is the prime reason that you live a holy life. That the Lord has changed you and saved you. You're now a slave to righteousness because of what he's done for you. And you're like, this guy's awesome. I want to live for him. Because he has changed my eternity. So we live godly lives because that makes much of our Savior. When my life looks different from the world around me, people are going, what is different about your life? And you don't go, me, I'm different about it. Why are you not like the people around you? Because no one around me is me. But when, we, when people go, what's so different about you? You go, man, I'm just like everybody else. The only difference is Christ has saved me. That I was once enslaved to sin and he set me free. And I remember what that life was like, or I've read in scripture where that life was going to lead. And I am so glad that he rescued me from that. So I will live every day for him because I'm just here for a shadow. I'm just here for a vapor. And then I get eternity. In fact, let me tell you, that eternal life has already begun. And they're like, you're a weirdo. Unless they're like, unless the Lord is working on their heart and pulling their heart from their old master. By giving into their sensuality, though, 
these teachers and their followers are bringing not praise or honor to the Lord, but instead blasphemy on the gospel and on the name of Christ. And the Christian will guard, will treasure the name and reputation of their Savior. In fact, Paul uses that concern for God's name to motivate people to holiness. Look, for example, at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here he's talking to slaves. He talks to slaves. He says, look, slaves, you need to honor your master. Why? Not because the masters deserve it. This is very similar to what Peter talks about in 1 Peter. Not because their masters deserved it, but because that lifestyle could actually bring glory to the Lord. So not because their earthly masters deserve it, but because their heavenly master does. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why? Why? Because they deserve it. No. What does he say? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Look, he comes, to, he comes to these slaves and says, look, you, you live in submission to, to, your, to, your, to your masters. You take that yoke and you give them, the, the, them worth and honor. Why? Because you treasure the name of God. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled by your action. If you throw off this and you do this and you act in a, an ungodly way, what, the name of God's going to be defiled. So don't do that. He's going to use the same motivation for young women in the church in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 verse 4 and 5. It's going to say, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. What? That the word of God may not be reviled what is the motivation for these young women do these things young women why what's the motivation what is the singular motivation it gives at the end it only gives one what does it say that the word of god may not be reviled that the motivation to do these things to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled to be pure to work at home to be kind to be submissive to their own husbands the chief the, the driving passion behind those things is a desire to protect the word of god so you'll lay you down your life in any sort of situation if that means that God's name would be lifted up. That the, that, the, that the word of God wouldn't be reviled by your actions. If you, want, if you want to live a life that honors God, then you have to live a life that's different from the world. The Bible teaches you that, that dying to yourself brings glory to God. That these false teachers are going to teach you to bring glory to yourself. Do what you want. Believe what you want. Live how you want. Who does that glorify you? And if your chief desire in life is to bring glory to yourself, like the world is telling you it should be, then you'll want to listen to what they say. Then what they say will sound really good to your ears. But if your desire is in all things to make much of your Lord and Savior, then you wouldn't do anything to bring blasphemy upon his name anything let me encourage you christian to use that as a really as a protection against sin in your life i think sometimes we forget that one of the things we can ask isn't what is this going to do to me if i do this 
What might be the consequences to me? If I do this, and let's say I'm caught, how bad of an outcome are we talking about here? But instead to think, if I do this, what does this say about my God? What does this say about how I feel about him? What would this say to others if they knew that I did this? Not what, it, what, would, not what would they say about me, but what would it cause them to say about my Christ? What would it cause them to say about my Savior? That that should actually be a greater motivation than what they'll think about you. In fact, Paul tells us that the world's not fooled by Christians who, who talk about the Bible, but whose lives deny it. Romans chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. You who boast in the law, not you boast in the law, love the law. The law is great. The law is inerrant, infallible. It is the very word of God. You boast in the law. You dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that's what these false teachers are calling for. They're, they're, they're claiming that their teaching is biblical, but it's actually a rejection of God's word. They're claiming, oh, we love the law, right? They're not saying get rid of God's word. They're just saying, listen to what we've got to say about it. And the fruit of that denial of God's word, because that's ultimately what it is, is that God's name is reviled. He says, you talk about how much you love God's word. You talk about, I mean, you might even have a, you know, a Jesus bumper sticker on your camel. But your life dishonors him. And the world recognizes, lost people recognize it. Lost people. The Gentiles who don't even know God, strangers from the covenant, without God, without hope, those people can look at your life and say, that's messed up. And you can be living it and be clueless. But you're not clueless. You just don't care. And that's the scary thing. If you can follow the false teaching and you can see it twist the word and you can see it lead to sin and you can see it lead to denigrating the name of Christ and you follow anyway. But what is the end going to be? You'll be walking hand in hand with those Gentiles toward destruction. Because the truth is your body left Egypt, but your heart never did. It doesn't matter if you say God's word is important. You're no different than these sensual false teachers if you're denying it with your life. And that type of life, a life that says God's word is great, but not great enough for me to change, is a life that brings shame on God. It's a life that says it's good, but just not good enough. That's why I said there's a danger of false teachers in all of our hearts because when we hear God's word and we know what it's telling us to do, we know how it's telling us to change. We know what type of life we should be living that would bring praise and glory to our God. And of course, yes, blessing to us and fullness and all those things. If we can see God's word, say that and read it and hear it and the spirit convict us and we know, we know what we're supposed to do. And refuse it. And we walk out of here 
unchanged. Unchanged. We're bringing the same shame on Christ's name that marked out these false teachers. That's the danger. Not just the false teachers out there, not just the false teachers on the TV, not just the false teachers on the radio or on the internet, whom we will talk about next week, but the ones sitting in our hearts, the ones that Christ has to kill over and over on our behalf, the ones that we will not listen to if we're truly his. So, as Christians, make sure that you're just not looking for the false teachers out there while following the one that sits on your heart. Let's pray. The good thing is, as we come to pray, is that God tells us he slays the false teacher on the hearts of his children. So if right now you're, you're hearing this and you are convicted because you have done these things in the past, the thing that will distinguish you from the false teachers in scriptures and, and those who followed them is right now you care. Remember, these, they didn't care. They didn't care that the name of God was blasphemed. They didn't care what they're like. But if right now the Holy Spirit is weighing heavy on you, then know that it is life to listen to that spirit and death to deny him. And your life is about to show a fruit here today, right now. Either the fruit of obedience or the fruit of disobedience. Heed the call of Christ. Abide in him and you will bear good fruit. Thank the Lord right now. If the Lord is convicting you, if he's laying these things, thank him for the heaviness of his word. Pray right now. All of us should be praying, God, I never, I never want to do anything that brings blasphemy upon your name. Ever. Pray that that would be even a greater hedge in your life to protect you from sin, that your love for Christ would far exceed any of your love for any of the passions you might have in your life. And that the honor due his name would hold you fast to him. God, we are, we are thankful for your word, but we don't want to just say, we don't want to make great your, your law. We don't want to just praise your word, but then by our lives deny it, Father. So, so right now, God, I pray that we who claim that we love your word would show that by our lives. Because the Gentiles can see, people around us, the people who don't even know you can see whether or not we are not just claiming your word, but living it. And Father, we can see and we know. And so, Father, I am, I pray that there is not anyone in here who is just following whatever they want to follow in your word, who is being their own master. 
because that is a way that leads to destruction. And if there is anybody in here today with that temptation, Father, I pray that you will kill that master in their hearts and give them a new master that is Christ. That you would make them slaves to righteousness, that even right now they might be crying out, God, I have not been living for you. I've been living for myself. I have wanted to run my life. I've claimed you as Savior, not as Lord. And, and Father, I have brought great shame on your life or on your name. And so, God, I pray you are doing that in hearts really throughout this place, even, even among believers, Father, that you'd be convicting them of any sin. That they have allowed themselves to want to be okay. That has brought shame on your name. That none of us would be okay with sin. None of us would be okay with even a speck of sin in our lives. That we would hate it over and over. Whether sins of action or even thoughts. That we would crucify them all at the feet of our Savior and Lord. And Father, there's great hope in that because we know we cannot do those things without you. But we know that with you, we can and will do those very things. That you tell us in 1 John that we have already overcome the wicked one. How? By our faith. So Father, help all of us today to slay sin by the faith that is given us. As we've seen already in Peter from you. By you. May we bring glory to your name and not shame. May we live lives that lead to life and not destruction. May we hate sin because we love our Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.